This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We're continuing our study that is looking at the passages from the Old Testament that have shaped the understanding of the Messiah and his expectation and what he's supposed to look like, what are his attributes, what are his job qualifications, and importantly, what is his relationship to the God of Israel. This week, we turn to look at the first of four suffering servant songs in Isaiah. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 42. And this is episode 264, Isaiah's first servant song. So Dustin, what is a servant song, you might ask? Good question. Answer, in 1892, a German Lutheran scholar named Bernhard Doom identified four sections, that is, four prophecies within Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, that appear to be individual units. They appear to be structured poetically, and these passages are in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then the tail end of 52 all the way to the end of chapter 53. These are the four servant songs as Doom labeled them. And from that point in 1892, all scholars working on Isaiah have referred to these four passages in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52 53 as Isaiah's servant songs. Now what's interesting is that these passages came to deeply influence the portrayal of Jesus in the New Testament. So they seem to be natural passages in our exploration of the messianic expectations and potentially messianic prophecies as we find them embedded within the pages of the Hebrew Bible and the ways that they were recognized in the writings of the New Testament authors. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, what is the original meaning of the servant figure according to Isaiah 42? Second, what is the relationship between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and this servant? And lastly, how did the New Testament authors illustrate Jesus in terms of the first servant song from Isaiah. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the first of four Isianic servant songs. So our passage today is Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. Let's begin. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice. 
nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. So this is the first servant song in Isaiah. Now there are some scholars that actually extend the passage a few verses further into verse 9, but for the sake of our argument, it's good enough for us to look at these initial seven verses. So we have a servant figure here. And before we look into the New Testament to see how this passage has impacted the early Christian writers, because it really did, we're going to find that the New Testament will quote verbatim sections from this first servant song in Isaiah 42 in reference to Jesus. So there's no question that this passage impacted the early Christian understanding of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So before we look at that, we need to ascertain the reference of this servant figure. And basically, within biblical scholarship, there are three interpretive options. The first option is that the servant figure is a single individual. It is one person. If God describes this servant as my chosen one, then God really means one particular person. So this argument goes. And of course, in the New Testament, it's quite clear that Jesus seems to be this particular person. And so you can see why many interpreters have made this particular interpretation. Sometimes they look ahead to the fourth servant song in chapter 52 and 53, and they see that this seems to be a single individual who suffers on behalf of others. So that's the first option. The second option is that this is a collective individual referring to the entire nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is described as this single individual, a single servant, but it is a reference to the Jewish people, the entire nation. And there are some reasons for interpreting that way. The third interpretation is like the second one, except it sees a distinction between this servant figure as a group of faithful Israelites that have been called from among the rest of Israel who is actually unfaithful. 
And so it would still see this as a reference to Israel as a whole, but particularly as the faithful Israelites, the faithful Jews whom God has called to rescue his people, indicating the use of faithful people of God among the rest of the people that are unfaithful. So those are the three primary interpretations of this particular passage. And of course, we are interested, at least initially here, in trying to ascertain what Isaiah 42 originally meant. What did the author want to teach to his original audience, to the original readers? And from there, we can move on to the New Testament to look at how the New Testament reads this particular passage. But I don't want to assume automatically that the way that the New Testament uses it is what the author of Isaiah 42 had intended for his original audience. We can't make that assumption. It might be true, but we need to look at the evidence in and of itself. So the earliest interpretation of the servant figure can be found in the way that the Greek translator of the Hebrew, the Greek translator who translated Isaiah 42 into the Septuagint, the way that he understood this particular passage. And so in the Septuagint of Isaiah 42, verse 1, to where the Hebrew says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. The Greek translator added references to this servant and to this chosen one. In fact, the Greek translator identified this serpent as Jacob, and he also identified God's chosen one as Israel, seeing the parallelism there with God's servant and God's chosen one, and the Septuagint translator interpreted that as Jacob slash Israel, clearly a reference to the Jewish people as a whole. Now, that could be a indicator of interpretation two and interpretation number three. Now, the way that the Septuagint translator has offered this particular interpretation of the servant of God's chosen one seems to follow some explicit references that are actually in the Hebrew of Isaiah. And those references seem to unambiguously identify the servant as Israel, as a nation. So in the previous chapter, Isaiah 41, verse 8, it says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. In chapter 44, verse 1, it says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. 44, verse 2 says, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And 44, 21 says, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel. So within the context of this servant song, before and after, Israel slash Jacob, the entire nation, seems to unambiguously be defined as God's servant, God's chosen one. So even though it's not explicitly stated in chapter 42, it seems to be unambiguously stated in multiple places within the context. And I didn't even give all the references. I just gave four, but 
the indicator there seems to be pretty clear. I think this rules out option number one from seeing that the original reference to the servant is a single individual as one particular person. So it seems to either be a full reference to the nation of Israel or to Israel as in the faithful people called out from among the unfaithful Israelites. Now, we do notice that this servant has a two-fold mission. I'm going to describe these different ways in which he is used for God's mission as the national mission and as the global mission. So in chapter 42, verse 6, Yahweh says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. So the covenant to the people seems to be a covenant to God's people, God's covenant people. So this seems to be the national mission. And the light to the nations could also be translated as the light to the Gentiles. That seems to be the global mission. But the covenant to the people seems to indicate that this servant is to be a covenant to other people, namely to the other people of God. This seems to be suggesting option number three, namely that this is a faithful group of Israelites called out from among the rest of Israel, namely those who are unfaithful. Otherwise, why would you want to call this group as a covenant to God's people? Now, the reference to the light to the nations is quite clear. It indicates that this particular servant has an outward focus. It has an outward mission of being a light to the nations. And this recalls the mission given to Abraham in that in Abraham and Abraham's seed, God is going to bless the entire world. You can see that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So this particular prophet is reminding the readers that they have a responsibility to continue in what God had originally told Abraham, and that the children of Abraham are to be the means through which God is going to bring his blessing to the world. And so we have lots of references to that. This servant will faithfully bring forth justice. The coastlands are going to wait for his law. He's going to establish justice in the earth. Now, when we look at this particular person and his relationship to Yahweh, it's quite clear that they are distinguished. Yahweh is the person who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. That is quite clear in verse 5. There are a variety of singular verbs and singular references there, singular pronouns. I am Yahweh. One particular person is Yahweh who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And this servant is someone distinguished from Yahweh. That is quite clear. A five-year-old can understand and see that there are different reference in this particular passage. No reader would think the servant is Yahweh himself. Now Yahweh empowers the servant with Yahweh's spirit. And so this servant is authorized and empowered to perform all of Yahweh's tasks. 
And that, of course, makes this servant a faithful servant. Now that we've looked at Isaiah 42 and the first servant song, we can move into the New Testament and see the various ways in which these authors have drawn upon this passage in order to shape and illustrate Jesus. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, the use of the first servant song in Matthew. So it seems quite clear that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, although we're talking about Matthew here in particular, have drawn upon Isaiah 42 in their depiction of Jesus' baptism. How can we see that? Well, quite clearly, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, God has put his spirit upon this particular servant. And so Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so the reference here to the Son, the beloved Son, in whom God is well pleased, that has been the recipient of God's Spirit, this seems to be, at least partially, echoing Isaiah 42, verse 1. The servant on whom God has placed a spirit, the servant which is God's chosen individual. Granted, scholars have actually detected three specific scriptural echoes at the baptism of Jesus. We've already talked about Isaiah 42, verse 1. The other one is Psalm 2, verse 7, which has Yahweh declaring that the son, the Israelite king, is the one that has been coronated for his royal vocation as the king. And the third reference, which gets ignored by many readers, is from Genesis 22, verse 12 which indicates that Abraham's son, who is going to be a sacrifice, is actually called the beloved son and the Septuagint. And of course, Matthew calls this the beloved son in Matthew 3.17. So the reference to Jesus as the newly baptized royal son of God, as the beloved son in Matthew chapter 3, seems to draw on all of these passages, Psalm 2-7, Genesis 22, verse 12, and our passage in question, which is Isaiah 42, verse 1. Clearly, Jesus is the recipient of the Spirit, which indicates that he has been anointed for his role as the Messiah, as the King. And what's really important to understand in light of Jewish royal messianism is that the Jewish king is a representative for the people. And this is very important. And I think this is going to help us understand why the early Christians would draw upon these servant passages, which seem to originally refer to the nation of Israel, or at least a group of faithful Israelites, and use that reference to now refer to a single individual, Jesus the Messiah because the king is the one person who can represent all of the people. And that is how Isaiah can speak of a reference to the nation, and the New Testament 
can take those passages and use it to refer to a single person because this is the person who has received the Spirit, meaning he has been anointed as the Israelite King, as the Messiah, as the Christ, and the Jewish Christ is the one person who represents his people. That's how royal Jewish messianism functions, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now there's another passage in Matthew which quotes Isaiah 42 quite extensively. So in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 13, it says that Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's Matthew 12, verses 13 through 21. So we have an episode where Jesus is demonstrating his ability to give restoration to the people, his responsibility of, in a sense, opening the eyes of the blind and leading people out of the prison. That is uh, a reference to Isaiah 42, verse 7, the final part of the servant song. And Jesus' actions here seem to bring about the frustration and the anger of the Pharisees who conspire as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew from the Pharisees and chose to heal others along the way. And this seems to be a way of describing the fact that Jesus is not going to quarrel. He's not going to cry out. He's not going to be put out. He's not going to be crushed until he has finished his ministry. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And this, of course, is allowing Matthew to have his own theology of Jesus being someone who offers salvation to the Gentiles, which is one of the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, does not just minister to Jews. He also, through his ministry, is able to extend God's salvation and redemption to the Gentile people. So quite clearly, Matthew is drawing a significant portion of Isaiah 42 in reference to Jesus specifically as someone who is performing his ministry. He's someone that is not liked by some people, namely the unfaithful people among the nation of Israel. But he has this outward focus of being the covenant to the people and, of course, the light to the world, namely the light to the Gentiles. Speaking of being the light to the world, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 14, that his followers are the light of the world. Now, this seems to be taking the reference that was made to the servant here 
in Isaiah 42 and extending it to those who are following Jesus. And those who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount are those who have listened to Jesus' gospel, his message of the kingdom. They have repented at it, and they've chosen to follow him. So they are not uninitiated. They are initiated people who have already accepted his message. They are a part of this faithful people of God. And so even Jesus, the servant from Isaiah, is able to extend this description of the servant to other people, namely to his fathers, to a group of people among the renewed people of God that are functioning as this particular servant. This is probably why even the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is able to draw on Isaiah 42 in reference to his own ministry. That's slightly outside of the purview of this particular study, since this is looking at how Isaiah 42 is shaping the early Christian messianic expectation. But it is interesting that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is able to cite part of Isaiah 42 in reference to the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Let's move to our third point, the use of the first servant song in Luke. So Luke chapter 2, there seems to be a very interesting reference to Isaiah 42 in reference to the newborn baby Jesus. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, O Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. And particularly there in Luke 2, 32, we have an explicit reference to Isaiah 42, verse 6, that is used to describe the newborn baby Jesus. And the person speaking this is someone who is making a definitive declaration because he's someone who possesses the Spirit and the Spirit inspires him to say these particular words. So God, speaking through this prophet figure, Simeon, is identifying Jesus in terms of the servant from Isaiah 42. Now, at the transfiguration, as Luke records it in Luke chapter 9, particularly in verse 35, the voice from heaven, that is the voice from God, identifies Jesus as my son, my chosen one. And that voice tells Peter, James, and John to listen to this son, this chosen one of God. Now, it's interesting because Luke is the one that actually has this reference to the chosen one. And the chosen one seems to be drawing again from Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
God is identifying the Son, the Son of God here, not simply as the Messiah, as the Jewish royal king, but as the chosen one, the servant from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. This is in Luke chapter 9, verse 35. So Luke has an additional reference here in identifying Jesus by God as the royal son of God, but also as the chosen one, and thereby connecting the references of the Jewish messianic king with the servant from Isaiah 42. Let's move to our fourth point, the use of the first servant song in the Gospel of John. Now, quite clearly, John 8, verse 12, has Jesus saying that he is the light of the world. That seems to be a quite explicit reference, at least in part, to Isaiah chapter 42, to where this person is to be the light to the world, the light to the nations. He's the one that's going to give sight to the blind. In John 8, 12, has Jesus saying that I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now there's a lot of imagery in the messianic depiction of Jesus in the Gospel of John as a person who illuminates people that are in darkness, both physically and spiritually. In fact, John chapter 9 has Jesus healing the blind man and giving actual sight to a blind man. But even there, we have the sort of twofold imagery of opening the eyes of the blind, but also giving understanding to those who are in instructional darkness. So like John chapter 9, verse 39, has Jesus saying, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. That's John 9, verse 39. There's a lot more we could say about the Gospel of John and the portrayal of Jesus as the embodiment of the Logos that, of course, has light that shines in the darkness. John chapter 1, verse 5. But the point there is that Jesus seems to be drawing on this particular language from Isaiah chapter 42 and the mission of that servant as the one that gives light to those who are in darkness. And Jesus takes this upon himself, claiming to be the light of the world. So he is the light of the world. And of course, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, the followers of Jesus are also the light of the world. And our fifth and final point is the use of the first servant song in Paul, particularly in the Philippian Christological hymn of Philippians chapter 2. So Philippians 2 verse 5 says that we are to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, while existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. That's Philippians 2 verses 5 through 7. So Jesus, the King, King Jesus, Christ Jesus, as Paul defines him in 2 verse 5, is the one that empties himself. He's not someone that regards his functional equality with God as something that he can exploit, 
but instead he takes the form of a servant. And I think there's a very particular servant that Paul has in mind here, and that is the servant from Isaiah. And we know that Paul has the servant from Isaiah in mind because there are two further references later in Philippians 2 that quote the fourth servant song. So we'll look at that in a few weeks from now when references to Isaiah 52 and 53 are used to describe Jesus as the one who poured out himself unto death and the one whom God has highly exalted. Those are explicit references to another servant song, the fourth servant song. So it seems that when she's taking the form of a servant, he's not someone that is taking on a servant form of human nature in the post-biblical doctrine of the two natures. Jesus is taking on the form of Israel's servant from Isaiah, from the four servant songs from Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52 slash 53. So there's more to come when we look at the fourth servant song in regard to the ways that Paul depicts Jesus taking on this particular role and being the one person who represents the mission that was originally given to the faithful nation of Israel in the book of Isaiah. So there you have it. That's the influence of the first Isianic servant song upon the New Testament writers and the ways that they use Isaiah 42 to depict Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue our study of the Isianic servant songs and we look at the second of the servant songs within chapter 49. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the Biblical Unitarian Podcast on the air, you can check out this episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.